in our verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel. So we'll be in chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, just turn to John chapter 6, of course, the fourth Gospel of the New Testament. We're going to begin reading at verse 22. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand so you can follow along with us in our study. And we're going to cover verses 22 through 43. So again, if you need a Bible, Pastor John will slip you one if you raise your hand. And we'll be in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 22 through 43. What we're going to be reading about, again, is Jesus is in the Galilee region. And keep in mind that as we discussed uh, last week, that John's very selective in what he's writing um, about in his Gospel. And as you look at the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give a lot of detail on Jesus' ministry up in the Galilee region and um, all the miracles, all the events that took place. And that's where most of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. But it's interesting, when you go to John's Gospel, John only spends one chapter, that is this chapter here, talking about Jesus' Galilean ministry. And, of course, last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, and now we're going to see that the crowds are going to come looking for Jesus, and he's going to begin to teach them about the bread of life is what they need. And so, Father, we ask this morning, that as we open up our Bibles, that we need the bread of life, you. And two words here that Jesus will emphasize is come and believe. To know that you are the one that is the bread of life, that as we come and believe, that we will never hunger and thirst again and have eternal life. That is in our souls, in our hearts. We're satisfied. And Lord, I pray that as we know that today in the church, there's so much emphasis on the temporal. There's so much emphasis on what I can get now. And Lord, we know that you are the giver of all good gifts. You desire to bless us. But more than anything else, Lord, what we need to do is live a life that is prioritized in believing you and submitted to you, surrendered to you, loving you and knowing you. So, Lord, I pray that these truths and the words that, that we read here, knowing that they come from you, would minister to our hearts in a very, very deep way. That, Lord, that we would come to understand this, that our joy may be full that our hearts may be comforted, to help us keep an eternal perspective on things. And Lord, that's what we're here for, to be reminded that the bread of life has come from heaven. And Lord, that you have provided what we need for our hearts and for our souls eternally. So bless this time. Help us to remember we need to turn ringers off our cell phones. We just want to be free from distractions and be able to focus on you in the next few moments as we study your word in Jesus' name. So chapter 6 again, Jesus ministering up in the Galilee region, and as he is, you know that great multitudes are coming to him, thousands of people. He'd been healing, as chapter 6, verse 2 tells us, they they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. He healed every kind of sickness and freeing the demoniacs. And we saw that Jesus would then take his disciples to get away on a hillside. And as he got into a boat, as they went to the other side, they would be around the area of Capernaum. They would go 
towards the east, towards that area of Bethsaida, they would get to a quiet place, a deserted place, is what the other Gospels tell us, because the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. So we can get some further information as we read about that story here in John's Gospel, which we did last week. And the crowds would, would follow Jesus, and, and as they were on that hillside, uh, in that quiet place, all of a sudden all the people came, and Jesus looked up at the crowds with compassion, and he would first of all begin to feed the crowd with spiritual food. That is, he was teaching them, he was ministering to them. And then as the day was getting late, the disciples were, were concerned, hey, it's getting late, there's no food, we need to send the people away. And Jesus would say, you feed them. And what would take place is that a small boy would bring five barley loaves and two fishes, and Jesus would take it, he would bless it, and break them, and then they would be multiplied where 5,000 men were fed in this miracle that he performed. And in the miracle feeding here that we read last week in chapter 6, the people at that time, Jesus being at the height of his popularity, wanted to, at that moment, crown Jesus as their king. But the only reason that they're wanting to do that is because they're coming to him uh, for material political reasons. They want a material political king. Hey, we'll never be sick again. We'll never be hungry again. He'll probably free us from the yoke of Rome. Let's make him our king. And so he would dismiss the crowds because he is going to return to them as we're going to continue reading in the chapter. And he's going to teach them about a greater need that they needed. And that was to come to him, believe in him, and know that he is the bread of life that comes from heaven. Now when we left off at verse 21, Jesus, when he dismissed the crowds, he, he would have the disciples get into a boat, go back over to Capernaum. And they would do that. And they were in a storm. It was nighttime. And Jesus came walking to them on the water. And they would receive him. And it's interesting. Let's read verse 21 again. Then they, that is the disciples, willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So when you read this, that immediately the boat was there at Capernaum, it's another miracle. Uh, as they found themselves, you know, in that storm at night, they received Jesus, and in that lake, and that's what the Sea of Galilee is, it's a lake that uh, sits in a bowl, it's about 850 feet below sea level, it's 12 miles long, about 9 miles wide, and the text told us that the disciples trying to their best, even though the wind was contrary, getting to the other side, they'd gone about three or four miles, and when Jesus comes, all of a sudden, they're on the other side. They're where they uh, were supposed to go. And the important lesson for you and for me is, is as we read that, we're reminded that Jesus will get us to where we need to be, to that place of safety, as he says, go to the other side. And he will get us there. And he will see us through in life, in the, the stormy, you know, uh, weather that we go through, through the, the rough sailing that we go through in life. He is with us, and he's going to see us through to get to the other side. Well, let's continue reading in verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. 
However, uh, uh, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the day after defeating the 5,000, the day after that storm that, that came across that region there uh, the previous night, the crowds, they're still looking for Jesus. They're still looking for him. They're a bit confused because they thought that Jesus was still in that area where he had performed that, that miracle feeding. They saw the disciples get into a boat. Jesus wasn't with them. They, they were alone. It was just them. And so uh, there was no other boats that Jesus could have taken. So obviously he's in the area. They're looking for him. But over time, they realize that Jesus isn't in the area. So this is what we need to do. Let's go find the disciples, and they will know where he is at. And I think it's worth stopping and considering just that, that little comment that is made by John. That, hey, we don't know where Jesus is. The disciples will. Let's go find the disciples, and they'll, they'll tell us. Jesus will be with them, and we'll go to them, and Jesus can be found. And the question is, do people do that with you? Do they do it with me? They know that you're a Christian and somehow the reality of Jesus in your life is being manifested. And, and perhaps they're thinking, I need to find Jesus. I need to know about him. And I'll go to his disciple. I'll go to you, to me, where Jesus can be found and sought and pointed to. So the crowds, once again, are seeking him, not so much to learn from Jesus or submit their hearts to him, but to get uh, something from him again they seen him perform these miracles and signs and they, they want more miracles want more signs that uh, they want to see come from Jesus and this is going to be the folly of the crowd that will manifest itself in their fickleness towards Jesus and as we continue through the chapter, particularly next week, what we will see is the crowds will begin to leave Jesus. They'll begin to, to fall away. In verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now isn't it interesting that the, the crowds seek in Jesus, they're asking, how'd you get over here? We didn't see any other boats, you know, that you could have been in. The disciples left alone. How'd you get over here? And how'd you get over here so fast, so quickly? And Jesus didn't respond by saying, well, you, you should have seen it. I was walking on the water last night in the storm, and I came to the disciples, and they were all freaked out. They thought I was a ghost and were yelling, and then, you know, that Peter guy, he came out and tried to walk on the water, and he, was, he didn't go through all of that. You know, you should have seen it. You should have been there. So they're asking him, how did you get over here? And now we're going to see that Jesus is immediately going to begin to direct the conversation as he answers them to dealing with their hearts. You're seeking me because you saw the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But I want you to understand about the heavenly bread that is available for you. You may have been satisfied physically, but I am the one that will provide and satisfy you spiritually in your souls, in your hearts for eternity. 
So they were looking for Jesus to give them something, material, food, whatever it is, rather than looking to Jesus to believe in him and come to him and to know him and to fellowship with him. Verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you uh, because God the Father has set his seal on him. You have the mindset to, to find me. You labor in, in getting your boats and rowing, trying to get to me, seeking me, uh, laboring for the bread that will feed you, but you're hungry again. And Jesus is making a very, very important point to them that we need to understand in our lives. Don't focus and just labor only on the material physical because it will perish. We know that everything that we have will one day perish and decay and burn up. I think that all of us that have lived in Greeley any you know, length of time is we go out Highway 34, and you know the big junkyard that's out there on the, the north side of the highway? We all pass by it. But I remember one time when one of my kids was uh, wanting to, to do a project and make a go-kart um, years ago that we actually walked through there. And you walk through there, and there's all these you know, cars, and people can go there and get parts and things like that. But I was thinking about it that at one time, all those cars that are now junked and decaying and rusting and all of that that are there, that at one time people, you know, bought those new cars and they, you know, polished them and they cleaned them and they went into debt buying them and people really, you know, loved their new cars. But all of a sudden, years later, they're in a junkyard and they're decaying. And you see, everything that we have as this world one day, as Peter writes in his epistle, is going to burn up. It's going to go away. You recall then in chapter 4 that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that if you drink of this well, that is Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But I want to give you living water that will satisfy you into everlasting life. And it's very important as Christians that we have a proper heavenly perspective. Yes, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I have this job. Thank you that I have this business that will provide for me, that I can be able to, to buy transportation, that I'm able to have a home and have clothes. Yes, we're thankful to, to meet our needs, but those things shouldn't be all that I strive for and want and prioritize in this life. But what we are to prioritize is the kingdom of God. And to remember that what I do for Christ, that is what will remain for eternity as I come to him and take of the bread and life. I will never hunger. I will never thirst. So prioritize that which is going to last forever, him who gives life everlasting. And the reason that people are not satisfied is because they are looking for it in temporary things which is perishing. Uh, something physical, something materially. Yes, we work to eat. Yes, it, it's, you know, something that we can enjoy having things, but we are to labor for that which isn't just material, but our needs, our priority is this, to look for that and work for that in the next life in heaven. And that's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. Any of you that have been <clears throat> maybe to a, a third world country or out, in, particularly in the mission field, some of us have taken short-term missions. And if you go to Africa or go to the Far East 
and you can go into certain, you know, villages or work with certain groups. And we here, you know, we are very, very wealthy. You might be thinking, I'm not wealthy, Pastor. I don't have hardly anything. If you have a car and you have a TV, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. And there are some places where a lot of people, as you go through Central America and South America and Asia and in Africa, they don't have anything. They don't have TVs. They don't have um, cars. They hardly have enough to eat. They live in, you know, places that are just, you know, built up, uh, um, you know, cardboard houses or huts, you know, that they have. And, and you can go there and you can see that they don't have anything. But those who are Christians, they have Jesus. And as you meet with them and as you talk with them, there's such a beauty in their countenance, such joy and blessing and thankfulness in their hearts because they know that this world isn't where it's at and that they're going to go to heaven. You see, in our society where we live, the mentality and the mindset and what is pushed on us so much is, is that, you know, you got to have more if you want to be happy. That's what's constantly told to us in the advertisements, that you're really not going to be happy unless you have this thing or, you know, this particular brand or what it is that we're, we're telling you that you need to be happy. And then there's the picture of the family that's happy and satisfied. And you've got to keep up with the Jones, and I've got to keep up with the latest fad. And we're a society, though, that is so discontent and dissatisfied because we labor and prioritize that which is perishing. What we are to do is seek first the kingdom of God. Labor for food which endures to everlasting life. Look to Jesus. Look on him and believe in him. The Father has set his seal on him, verse 27, as we read. A seal was a mark of ownership and approval and guarantee and confidence. It is in him and believing in him and knowing him you will find satisfaction and meaning and how foolish it is to prioritize those things which are perishing, yet we can get so distracted in the doing that and going for the temporary satisfaction, and unfortunately, is very much emphasized in the church today. You see, as I live for the Lord and in harmony with the Lord, you're not going to get distracted and sucked into living for that which perishes. It won't have control over me. It won't dominate me. It won't be my priority. I won't be you know, dictated by the desires of the flesh and worldly desires and all of that. It won't be dominating me because the maker of all things, he is my satisfaction and fulfillment. In verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. It's a question that so many people have today, isn't it? I mean, you can go to, you know, a lot of people, and I think that you can even stand outside some churches and you can ask people, you know, if you were to, to die today and you were to go to heaven and God was asked you, why should I let you into heaven? You get all kinds of different answers. Like I was a good, you know, father, a good mother, a, a, a good spouse. I was a member of the church. I gave. I did these things. I was a good person. Thinking this is what I have to do to earn God's approval to make it to heaven. It's a question that many today are thinking, well, this is what I have to do. This is what I 
do to get to heaven and, and find favor with God. It's the Muslim that would say that this is what you do. It's the five pillars of faith. That you make sure that you fast during Ramadan. That if you do these things, you'll get the approval of Allah. The Buddhists will tell you that you have eight steps of nirvana, emphasizing that there needs to be a, a detachment, you know, from this world and from your soul and all of this. Judaism says that there's ten commandments. Hinduism says there's a million deities, and how you know them is by contemplative meditation and, and chanting your, you know, mantra endlessly, that you might come into awareness of those those deities you see that's what religion says the million matras the eight steps to nirvana the five pillars of faith the ten commandments and here comes our lord and he says there's one thing one thing here's the work of god singularly and that is you believe in me because eternal life is not based on what work you do that's what makes Christianity so unique. It's based on what he did on Calvary's cross. You see, so many people think that this is what I have to do to get the approval, and if I fast, and if I do this, and if I belong to a church, or I'm a good person, and do these good works, and you know, I, 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 I do this, and this, and this, I should make it to heaven. But the Lord comes along and he says, here's the work. Believe on me. Believe in me your heart given to Jesus Christ, who died for you, who cried out from that cross, it is finished. I've provided the work. I, I've done it to provide forgiveness of sin. And come to me as I have risen from the grave to conquer sin and death, to give you eternal life and to bring you into right relationship with the Father. And know that in this life, He is the one that will satisfy you. What works do we do, they ask? Real simple, one thing, believe in the one that the Father has sent. Believe in me. And that's what he's emphasizing here. Come and believe, I believe, is, is used seven times in this chapter, but yet they're not going to understand. But we want to continue reading in verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Isn't it amazing? You're starting to see the fickleness of the crowd. What sign will you perform that we may believe? Do a sign, do a miracle. Prove it. Didn't he just feed the 5,000 the day before? It was a great miracle. Hadn't he been healing every kind of disease and sickness? And, and now they're saying, what sign will you do? Hey, we want to believe you. Show us another sign. And our fathers ate the manna, verse 31, in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They were saying that Moses gives us bread. Jesus says that the manna didn't come from Moses. It came from my Father, who is now giving you the true bread from heaven. In verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. The bread that you should be craving for <coughs> and asking for and looking for and striving for is me. I am the bread of life that comes from heaven, the true bread from heaven. And if you believe in me, you'll never hunger or thirst. It isn't found in the material physical. It's found in me, believing in me. I really believe that the one, because the Bible teaches this, the one who is truly is happy and has joy is not the one who has the most. There's a saying that the one with the most toys wins. You know, that's not true. That's a deception. It's the one who needs the least. The one who's truly happy and full of joy is the one who's content and understands that he or she longs for the one who is the I am. That's what we are to long for, not just for the one who is the I give, but it's him. It's feeding on the Lord. It's getting to know more of the Lord. It's growing in our love for the Lord, for Him, the bread of life. And in proportion of the time and energy and devotion and priority that you give to the Lord, you will experience more joy in life. You will be satisfied in life. And in proportion to the time and, and energy and priority and devotion that you give to the physical and material you eventually will be unsatisfied and unfulfilled. Because that comes by believing in Him. It's Him, the great I Am. Now, as I mentioned to you, John's very selective in what he writes in his gospel. And when we open up our study of John's gospel, he's centering his writings based upon seven miracles and seven statements of I Am. And this is the first one. He says, I am the bread of life, which means, number one, for you who like to jot down notes in these verses that we read in verses 35 uh, through 40, that he, number one, perfectly satisfies our spiritual hunger. Again, he perfectly satisfies our spiritual hunger. You come to me and you'll never thirst or hunger. True satisfaction comes by close fellowship with Jesus Christ, knowing him, walking with him. Just fellowshipping with him, growing in your love for him, resting in, in his love. Second of all, he receives all those who come to him, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. As you believe in him, as you truly humble your heart, anyone, and if you haven't done that today, I would encourage you to do that before this service is over to humble your heart and believe in him and come to him. And he will no means cast you out. That heart that truly comes to Jesus Christ, he will receive and forgive. All that he has given me, verse 39, I shall lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. Now, remember that <clears throat> in the feeding of the 5,000, that we saw that Jesus instructed the disciples, go in and, and pick up the fragments, go pick up the, the crumbs that were left over. All the people were, were full, and so pick it up so nothing is left. 
Nothing is lost, is what he said. So there are 12 baskets, 12 disciples. They each had a basket full of crumbs and leftovers. And I know that perhaps there are times in your life, and I know there's times in my life, where I feel a little crummy. I feel like a crumb. And the reason may be because I get caught up in pursuing that which distracts me away from the Lord. I've been laboring for bread that is perishing rather than the bread of life from heaven. And Lord, I'm not growing like I should. I'm not as close as I should be to you. I, I want to encourage you. Because even if you feel like a crumb, or perhaps you feel like your life is fragmented, and I know that in my own life that I have felt crummy at times, that I get fragmented, and pursuing that which really doesn't matter in eternity's perspectives. Hey guys, make sure that you gather up the crumbs. Don't want anything lost. Don't forget about Jeff. That nothing be lost. And he doesn't forget about you. Thirdly, he isn't interested in his own agenda, but his father's, verse 38. He explained that to the religious leaders in John chapter 5. You remember that? If you were with us in our study, they were asking him, why do you do this? Uh, the man that he healed at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day told him to pick up your bed and walk. And as that man that couldn't walk for 38 years is carrying his bed, the religious leaders are saying, you can't do that. That's unlawful. Who told you to do that? Well, this man healed me, and they found out it was Jesus. And so they're upset at Jesus because they thought he had broken the Sabbath day. No heart for this man, that he'd been healed, no concern, that a man who had been suffering for 38 years was healed by the Lord. So why do you do these things? And Jesus said, I work because my Father is working, for the Son can do nothing of himself. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Number four, the destiny of those who believe in him is eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day, verse 40. I am the bread of life, and as you come to me and believe in me, you'll never thirst or hunger, and I'm gathering you to myself. I won't lose you so that you may be with me for all eternity, and I'll raise you up in the last days, just as Jesus was raised up. In verse 41, then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, it is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? <clears throat> and Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. So they begin to murmur and complain. Hey, aren't you going to feed us? You know, it's breakfast time. And Jesus saying, I'm the bread that comes from heaven. Jesus, of course, talking spiritually, they're thinking physically. And that's something that we've seen, the pattern in John's gospel, isn't it? Nicodemus, John chapter 3, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking physically. He's going, how does this happen? Can a man enter his mother's womb into the second time? No, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say that you must be born again. Again, as I mentioned to you, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, she's thinking physically, hey, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. How, how do we get this water? And Jesus said, it's not here. You'll thirst again. It's the living water that I have to give to you. 
And once again, we see it as he's saying, come and believe in me. I'm the bread of, of life. Uh, they complain. What do you mean you're the bread that comes down from heaven? Uh, where is it? You know, they're probably looking around. Where's the bread? Where is it all? And Jesus is getting to the point that their father that ate of the physical bread in the wilderness, that is the children of Israel, they're dead. That's why he began by saying, don't pursue, prioritize, labor for that which perishes. But I'm the living bread, just as he offers living water unto everlasting life. So here they're complaining to him and about him, but here's the thing. What did the children of Israel do when they were in the wilderness? They also complained and murmured, didn't they? They wanted to go back to Egypt. We're tired of this manna. We want meat, murmuring against God's provision. Today, people will murmur and complain against God's provision. There are those who won't come to Christ. There are those who say, don't tell me that I need to come to Jesus for eternal life, that I need forgiveness of sin. Don't tell me that. I don't want that. I, I, I want to, to make my own decisions. I want to be my own man, my own woman, whatever the case may be. But I want to bring it a little bit closer for us as Christians that we can murmur against the Lord as well, His provision, not being thankful, complaining continually because we forget that God has provided the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and that we're going to go to heaven. He loves us, and He's going to work in our lives and do what is best for us. We love to complain in the world in which we live in. I want to remind you of what Paul said concerning the children of Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul wrote, Let us not tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Sometimes we think that if I complain enough, then I'll get what is coming to me. If I murmur enough, then I'll get what I want. That's what the children of Israel thought. They were murmuring against God's provision, against the manna, against what God had done in bringing them water from the rock. And as they complained, Numbers chapter 21, as we see that Paul makes mention of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that they ended up, the children of Israel, out there in the wilderness being bitten by serpents. And they were destroyed, Paul writes. Listen. If we murmur and complain about God's blessing and provision, it will just destroy our joy and our happiness and being thankful. And it will destroy your witness to others. One of the things that we see very clearly in going through Paul's epistles is that he was very thankful always. Even in the difficulties, and he went through a lot of difficulties. The New Testament tells us that we're to be thankful in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul would, would write to the Philippian church as he's writing from jail, doesn't know whether he's going to live, doesn't know if he's going to be executed at that time in his life. But he writes an epistle based on joy, and he talks about rejoicing always. Rejoice in everything that you do. And he would go on to say, do all things without murmuring and complaining. And what is interesting, in Philippians chapter 2, when he writes that, that the phraseology is the same that the Old Testament Hebrew uses in describing the children of Israel, how they complained against the Lord. I want to remind us once again, 
that the scripture tells us to learn to be content. And to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, that Timothy, having food and clothing, with these you shall be content. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, be content with such things that you have. And the reason that I'm parking on this a little bit is because I know how easy it is to get into the rut of complaining and murmuring and not being thankful. I can do it. I'm not content. I want more. I, I want this. This thing, if I pursue it, if I have it, that will bring me true happiness. Rather than pursuing and prioritizing and laboring for that which is eternal, and that is to continue to know Him and to love Him. We can get so easily distracted. And forgetting that Jesus Christ is the bread of life and has provided for us eternal life. Here's the thing. I don't know exactly everything about heaven, but I have a pretty good idea when we get there, we're not going to have the mindset of, oh, I wish I had more of that when I was living on you know, earth. I wish I had that you know, uh, bigger home or newer car or more of this or more of that, whatever it might be. I have a feeling we're not going to be talking about those things at all. We have a heavenly inheritance that is given to us, an eternal inheritance. And that's what we need to be pursuing and being thankful for every good gift that the Lord gives to us. Yes, He blesses us. Yes, He desires to give to His children. But to be thankful and to be content with what God has given to us and to know that the very best has been given to all of us that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We're a blessed people. It gets better for us. It gets so much glorious better, as Paul would write. It's not to be compared to what we face here on this side of eternity. Sadly enough, as I mentioned in the church today, so much of popularity in Christianity today is how to get more and claim more and receive more in temporary things. Folks, let's keep an eternal perspective on things. We can give the Lord our requests, our supplications, our desires, our cares, because He cares for us. But more than anything, Lord, to know You and to love You and to worship You and to eat and drink of You, knowing that that's what's going to satisfy me and fulfill me. So, Father, we thank You. We thank You so much for, Lord, this this lesson that we've gone over. And, and I think that a lot of us, that we know that Jesus is the bread of life that comes from heaven. But Lord, may we find our satisfaction in pursuing that which is eternal, the one who is the I am, the one who has given to us already his life on a cross, Calvary's cross. And he rose from the grave. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here in the sanctuary or out in the coffee shop that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that you've never come to the bread of life. You can't, you can't buy the bread that comes from heaven. You believe. You can't earn it. He said, come and believe. The one work 
is surrender your heart, realize, as the Bible says, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And we need to repent, come to Jesus, just turn direction. Don't be pursuing the temporal things, but pursue that which is eternal, Jesus Christ, and believe in him. And you'll have everlasting life, forgiveness of sin, and true relationship with the Father. And if you're here this morning, you've never done that. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you're not sure what would happen if you were to, to pass from this life to the next life later today or tomorrow or the next day or next week. Get right with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. And surrender and come to him, the bread of life. And you pray right where you're sitting. But Jesus, I come to you in need of the bread of life, and that is you. Because I am a sinner, and I turn to you, the one who died for me on Calvary's cross. And I believe that you died for my sins. And you were put into a grave, and you rose again, and you're alive. And so thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and loving me. And the invitation, all who come, that you will receive. Receive me as my personal Lord and Savior right now because I believe in my heart. And thank you for dying for me and help me to live for you and to pursue you all the days of my life. 